Hey, everyone. Happy holidays. It's time for another holiday chat. And uh, who do we have today? We got Paul, who's, I think, Paul, you've signed up for these calls every year since I started offering them. I think I have, but on every one, <laughs> every year. And and I know we've talked about different things over the years. Uh, last year, we talked about how you moved to Florida. And you talked a little bit about what was going on down there uh, with respect to the pandemic and everything. And uh, you were, we were talking about launching your business in Florida. And, and so you came back and you've got some updates for us and, and some different points to talk about. Why don't I, why don't I let you, let you begin? Uh, sure. Let's get going. The, uh, I'll call it the Florida journey. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, as you recall from our previous conversations, uh, my uh, in January of 2020, uh, my wife came to me and, and I said, well, what are you doing here in the kitchen? She says, I'm packing. And I says, what are you packing? She says, we're moving out of Michigan. <laughs> she said, she said, we're going to move to Florida before uh, a voting season. And I says, well, do you mean before November? All right. She says, yeah. And okay. And so I just said, well, you know, that's at least I've got a few months warning. And then I don't know how does she think we're going to A, do this and B, move my business and C, fund the transition of all of that because you just don't pick up and, and move overnight. You had a condo to sell and you had to get rid of things and the whole bit. But she persisted. Certainly a month later, she's still packing and she's filling the garage up with boxes of things that we're going to take and then start to instruct me on what's got to get moved out of the basement and the whole bit. So it was uh, the net net is uh, then the pandemonium hits or whatever yeah. you call it in March of that year. So that uh, it's just one more little obstacle. Are we still and she's oh, we're definitely going now. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, Michigan and so much of the northern states became almost unlivable from a, a conditions of government uh, interference, et cetera. And so uh, it became more palatable and we just pursued to do it. And then we arrived in Florida on November 1st uh, of 2020. And fortunately, she was a good shopper and she found us a, a lovely place to live that we were able to. Uh, rent and uh, we're still in the same location uh, we've been we're on our third year of the lease uh, that's the good news the bad news it's gone up 33 percent yeah as everybody knows it's not been good times anywhere in the country from from managing real estate and uh, that difficulty so that that journey was a great place to be we had freedom uh, uh, it was more to our liking the weather's been great uh, we, er, I early adopted, uh, for the pandemonium, I had virtual training doing, I kept my clients up North, uh, we were sustaining ourselves, my insurance relationships and business. I was able to sell contracts and annuity and keep, keep those going and doing it electronically because I was licensed in multiple States. Okay. So I, I was positioned as well as anybody could be to do all of that. And, uh, People eventually got zoomed out and they they participation wasn't there. The engagement wasn't there. The effectiveness of the results wasn't there. And because of all that anxiety and disruption that was coming throughout our country, uh, it's just a struggle to get people to renew contracts and, and et cetera. So year two comes uh, and I said, I got to do something additional. And I uh, I had a a hold of Florida real estate license, Florida broker's license, which was inactive, of course, when I was up north. When I came down here, I said, all right, I better go get engaged. So I joined the Keller Williams uh, Realty Office in Naples, Florida. Here. So, so sorry, you had a real estate license in Florida from before? Yes, yes. I had Oh, I didn't realize that. you lived down there before. I had not lived down here. I just did it as a remote. Uh, oh, okay. I, I licensed and uh, secured uh, my sales license and then secured my broker's license. And I just did it, you know, through training and I'm going testing remote uh, 
to have it because I had a business associate down here uh, that we had been doing business both states. And okay. uh, I, I wanted to eventually move down here. And so I said I would get it. So I was prepared to have that. Uh, and it's a good asset to have. Uh, but I didn't go out on my own and try to buy and sell businesses or do anything. I just let it lay dormant for the first year because I was doing the other things. Well, I came to the realization I better get some local relationships. And the only way to do that is I went to the guy who managed this property, uh, the rental property, and told them my situation. And he said, well, just sign up with us and join my team. He says, you don't have to really do anything actively, but at least you you're engaged uh, with the whole Keller Williams community. We got 700 agents down here. We got, you know, yeah. 70,000 around the country. And it's one of the most, uh, it could be the largest in the, in the world, you know, from that. So yeah, you're, said, you're plugging into a network of people that are all by necessity have built networks of people, you know, other people too. So it's, yeah, I can definitely see how that would help you. Right. It, it's the place to be, you know, and lesson number one uh, for anybody who may be listening or whatever is as you're making transition, number one, prepare with your licensing, credentialing, whatever, build your cash reserves or whatever, because it's just not going to be as easy a transition, no matter how much preparation you've done. And number three, look forward to what new networks you're going to have to create and going to have to build. And uh, but with the compliment to Keller Williams, I mean, there is, I'm shocked. Technology they have available, uh, the relationships available, the cross-commissioning structures. I mean, you don't have to participate in the real estate transaction at all. It's who you know and how you connect them in the real estate business. Mm. And it's not much different in the business brokering business. It's having your accountants and your lawyers and your friends and neighbors and being the people, being the person people know that, that says, hey, he's the connection, call David. He can help you figure that out. And the more of that you have, the more opportunity you have regardless of what you're selling. And so you set off to build those business networks in Florida and how has it been over the last year? Well, what uh, I, I first one uh, is I've got our small group in our office and then other offices. So there's probably three or four property management companies and then two or three real estate groups that I've become friends with their principals. And uh, they know me now and they know what I can bring to the party, which is well beyond just real estate transactions. And I've expressed that I'm not really interested in handling the transactions, but I'm available to help them do showings. I'm available to work for them because the payback will be eventually, I'll have a business owner that'll need more serious consulting or some of the other things I can bear. So educating around that, that's one. Second thing I did is uh, there is a, what's called a GROW network down here, which has six chapters. And it was started by a Keller Williams real estate agency up in Fort Myers. And so I joined that, all right? And in joining that, I have my ink and toner business that I, I referred to you before. I'm sure I might've mentioned it, but, which is nothing more than helping people buy uh, 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 remanufactured ink and toners at a lower cost than the OEM priced products. So uh, I uh, joined the GROW Network, and then the principal there said, well, the challenge is we, we have people in these groups that already have all of your specialties. So uh, we don't want you. I says, but is there anybody selling a toner? He says, well, no. So I, he says, well, that's a, that's a good one. So I said, all right, well, Rachel, my wife, will join, and, and she will representing and toner and Rachel's a, a, a great personality and she's also licensed in insurance and all the other services that we do okay but and she's a great person's person so uh she's joined and she goes through chapter to chapter there's about 20 people in each chapter there's 100 people that she has now met and embraced and in communication with so we went from i'm going to say being strangers in town to being uh, uh, you know, we know a hundred different people easily, right? Or more. 
and we get invited to events and we attend as many events as possible. And so slowly but surely, I'm seeing opportunities where we can build a local presence and get back into the consulting, et cetera. Let me, let me ask you this, because I know Florida is very much a place where people aspire to retire to or to move, to enjoy the weather and everything. Have you met many folks that were like born and raised there? Or has everyone got a story of coming from somewhere? Uh, most of them come from somewhere. Yeah. Um, a, a great deal of that. And uh, in this area, it's a lot of Midwestern, Minnesota, Ohio, Ohio Michigan, uh, Illinois, Wisconsin. Over on the East Coast, it's more of your New York, Pennsylvania, um, Carolinas, uh, et cetera. But okay. I mean, there's there's some there, but they're, they're mostly on the East Coast. And uh, it's the, the Midwesterners and Californias that are here. Uh, but certainly uh, in the, let's call it the regular folks, the folks that haven't necessarily retired, but have been here all of their lives, they, you know, they own the, the shops, they own the HVAC, so they own the plumbing operation, they own the, the restaurants, they own, they've been here, grew up here, right? And a lot of their employees grew up here. And mm. so there's still, let's call it the main, I mean, people say, oh, you're down there in Naples, Florida, you must be rich and famous and whatever. I says, well, there are a lot of billionaires and billionaires and it's rich and famous. I says, but most of them are never around, right? They're, they come and visit their high rise apartments for two weeks or whatever, fly in from all over the world and get on their yachts and do it. I says, but that isn't where the rest of us are. <laughs> the rest of us are right out on the streets working, you know, trying trying to make business go, buying and selling, going to the grocery store, just living real life. Most of those folks have people that do that for them. <laughs> what what has been happening there in the economy since everyone's started to move beyond uh, the the lockdowns and the pandemic and everything? Has, has there been a big change in the last year? Are you seeing businesses that that have closed start to reopen, uh, things like that? Uh, it started to get a vibe that things were going to start picking up, but then the hurricanes really whacked it uh, okay. big time. And so look to my notes and thinking, all right, engage locally, join the Keller Williams uh, and Keller Williams border realtors. That's another thing. They've got a very good border realtors in Naples that has extensive training and, and community activities or whatever. So, we could be doing something, uh, and I, I do a lot of training through them. I do it through Zoom, and I do it at the local conference center, which is only an hour, not an hour, a mile or two from my house. So uh, I have no, or I don't want to put it that way, I have every reason to take advantage of the engagement and work it, right? And saying it in a positive way, the only challenge is I said is I'm not 46 anymore. I, I don't have that much energy to go out and feed every one of these businesses. So I really have to start focusing and finding something that can be leveraged and I can get repeat and referral on because you can't be an expert at all these businesses. You can scramble with a lot of businesses when you're younger, but the older you get, you've got to really zone in on something that you can be passionate about, that you can love, and it's going to sustain you for your for your career. And I, that would be another lesson lesson learned. I might have refined my focus and cut my distraction back a little earlier in my career than I have. But on the other hand, it's but, been a but, lot of joy. Paul, you probably would have chosen to get rid of the ink and toner business, and then you would be locked out of that group you know, that you just got access to. I mean, you, you never know when these things are going to bear fruit. David, you know, you're exactly right. But, you know, the, we, we can laugh about the ink and toner business, but I, I mean, I have a handful of clients that have been with me for years or whatever. And so they send me orders and yeah. it takes me 15 minutes to process them. And it's all done electronically and they make the bank deposit. And I never touch it. Uh, yeah. So the dollars per hour I get paid for that business. 
what I should be doing is focusing on multiplying that <laughs> and getting it shimmed. That's something you and I had to talk about is how do I get more agents doing exactly what I'm doing? Because it takes almost zero hours, you know, and an order, order might pay me anywhere from 200 to $500 an order. And I'll get five a month anyway. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and, okay. And so you, you mentioned as well that you're still doing a lot of work back in Michigan from Florida and and that when you were headed to Florida, you thought I'm going to have to build a network down here. Uh, I'm what what I increasingly see is that business and the way business is done has to do with our networks and our connections, and less and less with our geography. Now, yes. I, I know you you use the term zoomed out. You know, people are are tired of being on Zoom all the time. Uh, like I am off on one of the four corners of the world here. And uh, so I used to do a lot of business locally. Now I don't, I don't, I hardly do any business locally, but I have these networks of people that I do business with over and over and over again. Uh, and most of these people I've never met in person and it's all over zoom. And I've got, you know, regular clients in Houston and California and, you know, New York and all these in Toronto, all these different places that I've never met before. And, and it's all through connections we made online or they, you know, found my YouTube channel and then they, they wanted to get me to do some work for them and, and then they come back. Right. And so, you know, I'm, what I'm wondering is, is building a new business in Florida really make sense or does it just make sense to keep building and operating the business you have in Michigan from Florida? Uh I'm beginning to believe more the latter, hmm. particularly in my case. How much how much longer am I going to be doing this? All right. Now, if I was much younger, all right, I definitely would build both, build the business network here. And as I continue to mature these relationships. I, I have products and services, and I am going to start promoting them more aggressively down here. For example, just going to do direct mailing to the target accounts that I know are going to benefit from the products and services that, that I have stacks of testimonials mm. from, right? And I'm going directly at them and targeting them a very simple, straightforward pitch. Are you in need of these kinds of services? If you are, would you like to see a solution? If you'd like to see a solution, here's a history of 40 years of testimonials of how these solutions have worked. Do you want to buy? Keeping it simple, straightforward. And all I have to do my, is get a few of those. And then the referral power of those is enough to build this business locally. So I won't walk away from it. And in fact, this year, I'm going to do exactly that. We're going to prospect direct and, and we're going to build some. Now, that being said, in looking at uh, cash flow for this year, okay, what are you going to do? If this is all waning, you got to go out and generate some new prospects. Well, the easiest way is what you're saying is referral prospect, right? And so one of... Uh, and this is a side of, of my friend uh, Rex House, who owns Improved Results out of Dallas, Texas. And he was the former president of LMI, uh, Leadership Management Incorporated, uh, continues to publish courses and, and has an entire management development system, all right, that, uh, that I use for client development, et cetera. But this year, uh, in order to get proper focus to address exactly what you're talking about. He took some parts of his books, one of his, or some of his books, and he created a little course that we did virtually called referral relationships and results. Right. And the whole principle behind that is you start with your network and then you build out that network by being reconnected to them, by offering a value to them, and then developing from those relationships. 
I think I might have told this story in a previous call, but when I was in Michigan, I had clients that were in the automotive industry. They had to make quality improvement programs for meeting the OEM's requirements. I would do a training and quality improvement program with them. They would invite their suppliers in for training by our company. Mm. That would network me into their supply chain. Their suppliers would hire us. I'd do the same thing with them and they would invite their suppliers. And so I would be training and consulting with a whole supply chain by doing that. And that principle still exists today. Well, that's really the principle of referrals, uh, results, referrals, relationships. Mm. Starts out with relationships. So to implement that after we had done that little course, Rex and others together, I made a list of my 10 best clients from up north and I called them all, all right? And just called them all to be reconnected. Some I talked to freely, some I hadn't talked to in a long time. And the question is, uh, what are you doing and, and what can I do to help you become all you, you want to be? And then are there some things that we should be doing together? And by stirring that up, I've got two or three of them uh, just wanting conventional management development instructions, et cetera, some coaching and others uh, wanting to do an extensive program like we did in the good old days. Hmm. You know, one of my major clients and he's major, major client, and, and he's now on contract with another company as a management advisor or whatever. And it struck him. He says, you know, we made so much progress back. This is 30 years ago. All right. Doing this, he says, I think I'm going to talk to the board and we're going to put those same systems in place there. Well, all you have to have is one or two of those to get your momentum going or to keep keep the bridge. All right. So to your point, it isn't one or the other. You got to have that bridge going. And then like you point out, well, now when you get both of them going, don't throw away the bridge. Don't wait, throw away the ink and toner. What do you? There's no reason to throw anything away, and at any one time. It's the other thing is, uh, you know, we, we still have our insurance contracts, and I I have clients uh, and business partners up north that have clients that that need insurance work. So I did. I don't know, twenty percent of my revenues this year came from contracts that were brought to me by problems that I could solve with annuities and other investment products. Yeah. And I was able to contract them over the phone. So when, when a product or excuse me, a sale is brought on a targeted basis, narrowed in with all of the prospecting and all the relationships done, you can afford to be distracted. That There's no doubt about that. If you've got a working machine, you can do those because that's the selling conversion stage. The challenge is when you're building from scratch and you're doing all the front end prospect, all the relationship building, whether it's locally or virtually, it's still a long process. Yeah. It, no, when you're when you're describing all this, it makes me think of uh my work as a machinery and equipment appraiser, which I, I don't talk about a whole lot online because it's just something I do here in the region, you know, within a three or four hour drive of where I'm located. And typically I get brought on the scene by banks and they're making a loan. Someone's doing an acquisition or maybe someone wants to refinance certain business assets. And so the, the banker will say, we need an appraisal. And then the, you know, the, their client will say, well, where do I go for that? And they'll say, well, we know this guy. And so I just get phone calls where it's like, hey, I, we need this and we need it rather quickly. But what's great about them is that they, like you said, they just, they come to me and um, they can be time consuming, but they're, they're intensive. They don't spread out. So, I mean, it might take me, um, you know, over the course of three or four days, I might put eight hours into the research and, and finishing it up before I create the final report. And I might have to drive somewhere, take a bunch of pictures. Um, but here's the amazing thing is that they're they're paid, you know, right up front. 
and they're in and out of my office, usually within a week at the most, and then they're done and I'm paid. And, you know, comparing that to, you know, like I first got into it when I was a business broker. So, so compare that cash flow cycle to the cash flow cycle of a business broker where, you know, you spend two years fiddling with a file uh, and then maybe it closes and you get paid. Right. And, and so it was a nice offset to that cash flow back then. And when I stopped being a business broker, I just thought, well, I'll just, I'll keep maintaining this. And every year I get, I get this work and it's not a huge chunk of my revenue, but there's not a lot that has to go in it for me at this point. And it just, you know, it, you get paid. So it's a hard thing to say, no, I don't want to do it anymore. Right. No, that's exactly right. And yeah. Uh, as I, I've been reflecting on, okay, how do I shape down, let's call it, uh, those are exactly the principles that we have to apply to. You say, okay, number one, how much business development up front is required to, to get this sale, if you may. Mm-hmm. And if it's all based on your historical successes, easy testimonials, almost uh, assured appointments, because they've been referred so highly, uh, well, you don't want to walk away from that. On the other, if it's the, hey, you make 100 calls and you get through to one and then you'll be able to negotiate that one and you'll maybe get it, maybe won't, then you say, no, that's, look at that investment in the funnel and then make some decisions. And I, I have some of each, you know, that, that we're, we're working on. And the other one is uh, what they used to say, uh, rabbits lead you to bears. There's some work that you're really willing to do. And it says, oh, that's a very small project. I say, no, that's a very small project. But you know who owns that company? <laughs> Somebody who owns a very big company over <laughs> here. <laughs> and this is just one of his or her toy companies. Once you do some work for there, you will be brought in instantly. Yeah. And and you referred, and I, I tell the the statement over the years, you know, 80%, 90% of my business came from referrals, from referrals, from referrals. And when you would go into that kind of highly referred environment, there wasn't a negotiation on price. There wasn't negotiation. There was a discussion of, here's my problem. How fast can we fix it? And what yeah. do we have to do to make it happen? And what is your recommendation? And I don't have resources to do this. Can you help me with those? It was all productive solution discussions. And of course, you love those. I love those. Anybody that's in business that adds a value. And and you know, what's interesting is that a lot of people out there, I don't think are prepared for that kind of client. Um, I remember back when I used to own a few apartment buildings and my kids came along. I used to do all the handyman chores myself. But then when the, when the kids came along, that's when I realized I don't have the time to do these kinds of things anymore. I don't have time to go, you know, repair a staircase or, you know, something like that. And so I, I met a few handymen and, um, and they would automatically default to this cycle of, oh, I'll go take a look and I'll, I'll work up a quote. And I would say, well, if you do that, I'm going to have to wait a couple of days for you to do that. And then you're going to spend an hour looking at it and writing up a quote or two. And then you're going to expect to recoup that time in your, whatever it is you're going to build me. And I would say, instead of doing all that, why don't you just go over and fix it? Right. Just go fix it. Well, but you don't know how much it costs. I'm like, do you have an hourly rate? Like hourly rate plus material? Like, you know, and, and they, a lot of these guys just weren't ready for that because they don't meet those kinds of customers. But exactly. if you know them and you know they do good work and, and you know that they're going to likely treat you fairly with their billing, then that's the optimal way of doing business is just to say, sure, I can take care of that and then just yeah, go do it. You're exactly right. And, and you know, the ones that are doubting are the, the, the phrase that I would use, and they would say, well, you're not going to know how much it's cost. I said, why? Were you going to overcharge me? <laughs> <laughs> They say, oh no, I would never overcharge. Well, well then go fix it. Yeah. <laughs> let me let me know how much it is. Just don't overcharge me. 
Now it's their responsibility to be fair, be honorable, or whatever. And and the other thing, and you know this to be true, is you're only gonna get screwed one time. Somebody this that would be that's their biggest mistake. Don't don't do me wrong. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because you you exactly. Yeah, because when you when you violate that trust, then the person's not going to invite you back. That's it. Never, never back again, and never get a referral. So the, the foolish thing in the world, like you're saying, is forget all this bid stuff. I got to I got to tell this joke on my head. This morning, I've been working for. It's a small, not small. Uh, it's an annuity, right? This client, two months we've been working, right? This is just one chunk of cash moving from one company to the other company to a new annuity, a better performing annuity. The company that held the funds and messed around for a month, found every reason in the application. There wasn't a, a, a middle initial or, or the name was spelled wrong or they found every kind of possible delay week after week after week. So anyway, then the receiving company, after they, Get it. Found every kind of delay to not process. This has been going on for two months. And this should have taken less than seven days. All right. So I get a notice this morning from one of the principals of this company. Oh, we got the cash. Check is here. We got it. We're making the deposit. And the annuities are only issued on Wednesdays. Okay. And since this is Thanksgiving week, it might be next Wednesday. So after waiting two months, finally struggling to get 50 phone calls. I'm telling you, it, it didn't work. <laughs> the commission on this is so small compared to all the time I put out. At any rate, I read that email and I and I sent an email and I wanted to be as positive as I said, thank you very much for this update and feedback. I I didn't realize that Thanksgiving week didn't have a Wednesday. <laughs> it must be an attempt to lower the productivity of the USA. <laughs> and the smiley face fall. Right. But it just hit me. I said I had to laugh. I didn't know Thanksgiving week didn't have a Wednesday. If if I were good to guess the impact of Thanksgiving on their company's activity, I would say it would affect the following week's work, (laughs) right? If people were absent Thursday and Friday, then obviously there's two extra days of work that have to be caught up on before the next Wednesday. But I don't know. The, I, I, the whole thing, the productivity in our country is suffering so much. Not only our country, your country, all around. Yeah. People have just collapsed over the last three years. And I'm telling you, if I had contracts to process on a Wednesday before Thanksgiving, I can assure you my employees are not leaving for home early. That's just the way it is. <laughs> we've had We've had so many new holidays here in Canada added to the calendar that this year was the second annual, it's called Day of Truth and Reconciliation, I think. And it's to remember the mistreatment of First Nations people back in the settlement times and all that kind of stuff. And it's such a new holiday, the school board forgot it to put it on their calendar. And so it it was a Friday was the holiday and on the Monday, we get an email or Tuesday, we get an email from the school saying, oh, yeah, we're closed Friday. <laughs> it's like, because I, I don't think people were really certain what kind of holiday it was. Because, you know, sometimes there's a day on the calendar where you still go to work. Mm-hmm. Right. And and but and sometimes there's a day on the calendar where some people go to work and other people don't like, you know, government workers don't go to work, but everyone else does. Or sometimes even just the federal government workers don't go to work, but the, the other ones do, right? And and so it was it was so poorly communicated that all of a sudden that week between Monday and Thursday, everyone started to figure out that they weren't going to be able to be open on Friday. 
And at the on Monday morning, it was going to be a regular week. By Friday, all these things were canceled. Uh, it was a big mess. Oh, that's right. And then everyone's playing catch up after that. You know, the uh, well, it's it's the instability that our country have gotten used to and tolerate and continue to tolerate work from home, work from this. I'll come when I want. I'll do what I want. And whatever, you can't run an army that way. You can't run a company. You can't get anything done. No wonder productivity's collapsed. I don't know how the heck you could build a car or or do any anything else that requires a team of there of people in every slot in order to produce. We are we are systematically destroying that by making everybody ad hoc workers. Oh, I'll work what I want. I'll process when I think about it. He said, "What are you kidding? Is get this done." You know, and with that kind of mindset in the financial services community, and this isn't the other one, I'll spare you the details on the other other one that I've worked on, but it's just as bad. I'm saying this: these transactions used to take a week or two, and now they're taking a month to three months, and they're proud of it. And I said, what is going on? And they say, well, we have people working from home, and a lot of them don't know what they're doing, and we're trying to train them, but we're trying to, and I'm thinking, what are we running here? We're running this whole country into the ditch. You can't, you can't just collapse everything. Like, well, when we get around to it, we'll process your, your, your insurance contract. And you know, what are you doing? What if I have an accident tomorrow in my car? Well, I don't know. If we get paperwork done, you'll be okay. <laughs> if we don't, I guess you won't. <laughs> what do I do? You better stay at home. All right. And that's exactly the way they act. This is that. That's how crazy. Right. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a beater for productivity. So let me mention um, the. Uh, we were uh, talking about cash flow, I think. And then you you had uh, some experience of, of doing a presentation recently. You wanted to bring up some some points. Yeah, uh, I was in a. Uh, in this organization. uh of business roundtables, and there's 14 business owners, and all the chairmen gather and they converse about, okay, what are the impacts of cash flow they want to talk about at their roundtables? And so uh, I had some of those notes. I was all organized here. What did I do with them? Nope, here they are. <clears throat> and uh, I'm going to just throw out some of these ideas because you, you may have already written these in your books, but I think it's instructive for all of us to remember issues of cash flow. And one of the questions was, where does your cash flow fit on your list of your top five concerns? You know, if we're riding high and things are doing good, it's not a problem, right? Well, exactly. And, um, I think though, it really depends on what kind of business you're operating. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so if you're running a retail type business where customers, you know, pay, at the point of, of order and, and upon receipt of the goods, uh, like restaurant, retail shop, et cetera, managing your cash flow is going to look very different than if you're a company that has to maybe make payments on goods in advance of receiving them. So you have to make upstream payments earlier than the goods arrive, maybe importing components or something like that right from another country. And then if you, in turn, give your customers time to pay you, you know, if you give them 30 days, which probably means for a lot of people, 45, right? Like, and then all of a sudden now you've, you know, businesses like that tend to end up with a controller whose only job is to manage cash flow. Yep. Right? Exactly. And that was what uh, one of the other members pointed out is there's a big difference between having a cash business and having a business that may have inventory. Yep. that may have receivables, that may have payables extended, that lots of different ways, lots of triggers may have a line of credit, may have limits on their line of credit based on their assets. There, there are a lot of implications hmm. to the word cash flow. And yeah. very right pointing out is you got to take that, you can write a whole page on the implications of cash flow and how do you manage it. So it is a, I don't want to call it trivial, but it's spoken often trivially. Oh, my cash flow is this and that and the other thing. And the question is, hey, buddy, you got to be really serious when you say cash flow. What does that mean? Where's your problem? Oh, my line of credits 
expired, or I can't collect on my receivables, or I've extended my payables too far and my vendors have cut me off, or I bought too much inventory and now I can't get rid of the wrong thing because the seasons change. I got shovels and it's summer. Right. But on, and, and it goes on and on and on. All right. So, I mean, that is a book all of its own. <laughs> well, I, I, I have a course out called um, my cash flow forecasting and business plan writing course. And when I created it, it's it's like 13 lessons. I did it over 13 weeks and I did it with a live. I did it with a live class. And so there were people that joined up before any modules were created because I wanted their feedback on each module. And there was actually one module I completely scrapped and redid based on the feedback. Um, and in that course, I have five different sample companies and they're all different. They have all have different characteristics like the ones we're just talking about. One's a seasonal business. Two of them were business acquisitions. Three of them were startup. A couple were cash businesses. A couple were businesses that took order on custom produced things. And so they had... Um, you know, customers making deposits. Um, and then there was a, a, a retail store that had to purchase inventory three months in advance. And so they had a cycl seasonal cyclicality to them. And so I, I tried to think of sort of the, the principal different types of cash flows that, that would exist out there when I did that. That's great. That's great. I'm going to have to go and get that, uh, get that link for that course. And it's, I'm going to send, send it to all of my people. You might want to put it on the bottom of the, the video or whatever. So it's, it's bizplanschool.com. So B-I-Z plan school.com. And for everyone listening who's ever criticized me for having too many different websites, this is exactly why I have specific URLs pointing right. to specific products. So they can easily be verbally shared. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's great, great insight. I I remember years back when you were starting to put that together, right? And uh, done it over a few weeks. But I want to I'm going to communicate that to this uh, team of people because they all would benefit from the insights of the cash flow and the detailed analysis to protect their own business. That's all really saying. But is yeah and you and, have to protect your business differently than the next guy and and the reason why i built that course is because everyone wants to use a template but there is no template out there that is an accurate reflection of your individual business and that's that's why i think you have to start with a blank sheet and so that's what i do in the course is we we start with a blank sheet we start with sales how many widgets can you sell how long does it take to sell them you know, and then and we expand upon that. And then how long does it take to make the thing that you sell? If you get an order, if that's the kind of business you're in, right? And so we start with sales, then we turn that into revenue. And then we turn that into what the costs are. And we create this, the uh, cash flow. And then we uh, are able to vary. Even if you make it, if you make a sale in January, you might not get paid for that sale until, you know, May, Right. Right. And so the, it all ties in and then, then, then we turn that cash flow into an income statement and then a balance sheet. And then I show you why you need those because ultimately it all goes into a business plan for theoretically either attracting investors or, uh, or getting a bank loan. And so when, when people build that for their own business, they can then make a cash flow forecast going into the next two years and then they can go and they can, add columns so they can have their cash flow forecast for November. And at the end of November, they can add a column and they can put in their actual numbers. And then they can start to plot their performance versus plan. And every big business I've ever worked in has had a budget and they, they plot performance according to budget. And as they move through the year, if they're not going to hit the budgeted profit, they start to make adjustments, right? Right. Most small business people I know don't do that. Right. Right. And then they get to the year end and, oh, we didn't make our numbers this year. Well, did you have any clue to that like six months ago? Were you even looking at that? Right. And and the truth is most of them aren't. Right. 
Well, that uh, one of the other comments of, of uh, on, from this group uh, was examine things for the fourth quarter. And I found that kind of interesting and said people start slowing down their decision-making process when there's cash flow issues. And that's correct because they're, they're going into freeze. They're going into fear and decision-making doesn't happen quickly because doubt is there and they don't know what to do. So it becomes a real crisis and which takes me to the end. And I know we're, we're getting close to the end here. So let me just mention, I, I think I told you before that I've written a book called Play to the End. Hmm. I, I um, read it, so, actually. All right. Great. So, some years back, and I'm updating it, and I'm going to add new material to it and some of the new ideas that I, I picked up, particularly over the last year, post-pandemonium, uh, and uh, to try to address the realities of what was, I mean, we had a a society really focused on productivity and supply chain management around the world and efficiency and more for less price and on and on and on. And we've gone just the opposite towards being floppy, being, hey, if I ever get around to it, I'll do it. You know, let's do it the hard way rather than the efficient way. Uh, like you're saying is, hey, let me go out and give you a bid before I get a job. Forget all of that. Let's get trusted network, trusted advisors, trusted players. Let's get it focused. Let's know what our clarity, what we're trying to accomplish and set a very tight deadline to get it done with a very tight budget and get results and get it done. And we got to get back to that. All right. And play to the end has a lot of ideas to it, but I've got a lot more to add to it now. And uh, one of the things in play to the end, the theme came from watching Tom Brady on the, uh, the Super Bowl. And uh, what's interesting is every business is in a third quarter mentality all the time. They're always thinking they're in the third quarter and now we're not even making our numbers. Things are a problem. And what am I going to do? And they have the fourth quarter left. Right. So they push and say, we can finish strong. We can make our sales. We can make our quotas we we can get this and it never turns out that way you wait to the last end how many basketball games have you ever seen that didn't get scored in the last three minutes or one minute or football games or whatever it seems like every sports game every po political battle every business thing we human nature i guess we we wait to the last minute we don't close <laughs> comfortably on anything we take everybody to the end, way to the end. And it doesn't need to be that way, all right? Yeah. We can do a lot better if people would do what you said. Hey, why don't you get a budgeting plan? Why don't you measure it every day? Why don't you take care of it? And, and then you will find that you'll get better results. Plus, you won't turn over your people. You won't ruin your customers. You won't have emergencies. And, and this what I call chaos. I've been using a lot in my talks with people before. I said, you ever watch that commercial where that guy, Allstate commercial, he drives his car into people and, you know, all of that, the, the chaos. Do you see that commercial? I, I haven't. No, I no, but it sounds fun. <laughs> his name is Mayhem. All right. It, okay. It, they show him in the commercial as well. Hey, Mayhem, well, let Mayhem go with you. Mayhem will go with you. And everywhere Mayhem goes, there's a, Chaos, chaos, there's an accident, there's this, and it's, well, you should have prepared for mayhem, you should have prepared for buy all state insurance, right? And it's really, it's really quite clever. And I thought, I says, you, that is a reflection of our culture. You have to understand when you watch TV and you see what's going on, why are they saying that things? What has taught me over the years is I'm not connected to what's going, what the kids are saying today or what's really going on out there. So if you can't figure out what the TV commercials are saying to you, then you're not connected to what's really going on. <laughs> but if you watch what the TV commercials are saying to you, then people are experiencing that in their own life. And this is a perfect example of mayhem and chaos. They're not putting that commercial on because people don't identify with it. Everybody identifies with it. They're not paying attention in their driving. They're not doing this and that and the other thing. And they know they need that product. Yeah. 
to cover them. And so in, in, in play to the end, my, my thought is that we've got to get people back to understanding they have clarity of their objective. They have good budgeting you're talking about. They just put some disciplines and chill out. Quit trying to do so much. Do the right thing and then do it over and over. Yeah. So, I mean, this is this is really high level and a lot of people are going to disagree with me on this, but, you know, the drive to being effective, efficient, being responsible, showing up on time, doing your job on time, those are vestiges of a time where people actually had to be responsible for themselves. Where if you wanted to eat, you had to work. And, and if you had a family and you were supporting the family, then you definitely had to work. And you couldn't mess that up. You'd be letting those people down. But now we have these comprehensive welfare states where, you know, like why are, and it's not just government welfare. It's like, why are there no teenagers showing up to work? Like, you know, a lot of the lack of labor in the labor market is in the lower end, lower paid jobs. But when I was a teenager, those were all the jobs that teenagers did. But why why can't the fast food restaurant find enough 17-year-olds, right? It's it's because their parents are just giving them money, right? So it's like, why would you want to go and work if you didn't have to, right? And and increasingly, there's a larger and larger group of people in society who figured out that you don't really have to do any of those things. And maybe life isn't the greatest, but you're not going to die. You're not going to starve, you know? All, all the real negative outcomes that people might have faced in, you know, the early part of the 20th century, those outcomes aren't there anymore. They've all been papered over by, you know, essentially wealthy societies who can afford to, to provide for everyone. And what it's leading to is a society that will one day not be able to provide for everyone, right? That's what, I mean, that's what I think. It's, it's you know, back in the days when you had to be responsible for yourself, it also meant things like, you know, people had to be very choosy about who they decided to get together with, right? You know, you young women had to be very careful about which men they chose to be with because they had to know that that guy was going to stick around for the long term. Today, those same incentives aren't there, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, then you end up with women choosing men, not based on long-term prospects, but based on, you know, oh, he's attractive or whatever. And then, you, you know, you end up with a, a woman gets pregnant and there's no dad around, right? And so it, it's just, it, it's a slow motion train wreck that's been unfolding over 50 years. That, that, that's what I think. And um, like I said, many people may disagree with me, but all of these little things you know, you're, you and I are introspective people. We think about ourselves. We think about how we think. We think about our values. We think about what we want. We think about how to get it. The vast majority of people are not like that. They just go out in the world and react to things. No, that's that's very true. Now, I think your summation there is, is quite accurate. I agree with it. Uh, and the, the final point is most people aren't paying attention to any this yeah and i've i i think i said this before when i uh being an engineer and uh productivity and this my whole career and then when i took that uh additional time to say all right i'm going to get a philosophy and a theology degree and, and all of that and study it was very reflective time with people that are up in the philosophical world and, and boy did i learn a lot right i mean i was thinking people are working hard trying to produce and this and that and the other thing. And I came to realize that I was like the smallest percentage of the population. And the rest of them were up there in some kind of a theoretical world. And they're just bouncing off of whatever was coming. And that's just the way it is. That's how life is. Hmm. And, and here I, being an engineer, thinking, oh, no, you form life. You, you, you take situation. And you for, shape it and then you do it. For oh, you, no. everything is cause and effect. <laughs> right. Right. right? So and how was, do the parts fit together? How do we exactly. how do we get them to move? Yeah. 
<laughs> exactly. So, but, but we've moved more and more to uh, not only the philosophical, but I'm not responsible. I'm, I've just happened to be born here and I'm here and however it works out, I guess it works out. And <laughs> it's shocking how many people are still, still that way. Reminds well, me of what and, I know. And this is, this is how I, you know, I was, I was thinking about this. So, you know, why is it just catching up to us now? It's, it's because back when these forces started to play in society, um, there were still people who had been shaped in their personality by the prior conditions. Yeah. Right. And so that's the way they were trained to live. So they, they kept living in that way. And, and they, as much as they could, they passed these thoughts and beliefs down to their children. But with every successive generation, fewer and fewer people are absorbing that. And with no real outside pressure forcing you to be responsible, what happens? So you look at the, I, I mean, I speak to a lot of people who are immigrating from developing countries into Western countries. And they come from environments where you have to be responsible. There are no protections and safety nets and everything to take care of you. You got to make sure you're on your game. And so then they come over into this environment. Well, that's how they're going to behave, right? And this, because that's the way they they develop their personality in their prior country. And so this is why you, you can constantly see, you know, the, the immigrants and children of immigrants are like hardworking and they're getting things done. They're achieving things they're setting goals or they're, they're accomplishing. Then, you know, two doors down, there's a neighbor whose great grandparents were also immigrants, but, but by this point in time, they don't act that way at all. Mm -hmm. It just, it's a dilution of, of the behaviors, I guess. I don't know. This, this, this recording might get a lot of pushback in the comments, but, um, I don't think so. Not not with the viewers on my channel. I mean, come on. No, I don't think so. I, th I think people we're, are. People we're are we're all over here trying to figure out how to achieve more, and so all the smartest people on the internet are over watching this channel. Well, I, no, I think that's true. Uh, in in terms of, uh, they're trying to figure it out. I'm I'm trying to figure it out. I I'm still as purposeful as I've been since I was fifteen years old. Mm -hmm. And and I'm still trying to do it and to be better. And it doesn't matter how old you get. It's part of what you want to do and how, how you be. And if you're of that ilk, you're struggling right now. You're figuring out how can how can we deal with this world and the behavior patterns? And you mentioned the youth and what's happened. And uh, people, uh, I've heard the same comments. Their parents won't let them work. The teenagers can't work. Their parents, I want you home studying so that you can get uh, get that scholarship money at, at university or you can win a football scholarship or you can, they have a whole different mindset of what the priorities are. The priorities aren't learning skill, all right? Uh, aren't learning the fundamentals. I was making a list the other day of, I said, I'm going to make a list of what are essential skills. You know, Mike Rowe, he does that all those programs he's a tv program guy and he talks about uh, how 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 business or works or jobs that work and stuff like that it's about jobs and work right. uh, but mike rose his name at any rate i thought to myself you know forget university university has been one of the most expensive burdens that it can put on this country yeah. and continues to be all right with little productivity little results very poor results in my opinion uh, and not just because I am an engineer, but the engineering colleges are about the only ones that produced anything that actually the people can go out and do work. Whether they all work or not is another issue, but at least they had the capacity and the skill set and the training to go do something with compared to everything else that's gone on. But I thought even with that, and I loved my education a little bit, I said, I'm going to make a list of every essential training, every essential learning that I've had in my career that has really paid dividends. The Dale Carnegie class, for example, the LMI productivity class, yeah. Xerox selling school, the and, and go through the practical training, all right? My licensing in insurance, my licensing in real estate. And I, and I put them all down and I said, I learned more real world applicable 
practical things that I could go do something with to add value to the community, add value to myself and to customers. And if we would teach people those skills and say, that's what you're going to do. You can pick amongst this list, but this list isn't English and history and this. You should take that too, all right? Yeah, you know, I I think that school and education is going to be changing a lot here soon because um, when I was a kid, they said any degree is a good degree. I went to university. I studied business, but I saw a bunch of people studying sociology and history and English and all that kind of stuff. And then they all worked at Starbucks. Right. Right. And so now um, my generation, I mean, my kids are 13 and 14. So in 10 years time, or I guess not 10, like six, four, four or six years time, they're going to be starting to look at the university, but I'm not going to fall for that trap of any degree is a good degree. And, and I think very quickly we're heading to the first generation of parents who know the truth about university degrees. And someone was making some comments the other day on Twitter and about student loans and, and, you know, getting a liberal arts degree and ending up in all the student loan debt, you know, doesn't make any sense. And I, I put a, a snide reply. I said, Hey, um, a student loan is my kid's only opportunity for a liberal arts degree because I'm not paying for it. You know, you know, you mentioned uh, accounting is one that I forgot. You've got a business degree or whatever. Account- See, when I went to college, I went to engineering college, but I was also on, on a student council or something. And we had to have a budget at student council. And so, everybody's there and we're all in engineering school. And then the, the advisor says, well, you guys need to make a budget. So we, well, professor, how's the budget? He said, you don't know what a budget is? He says, well, you better go take an accounting class. <laughs> and, and he says, I'll get you started. And literally, if you were on any of the, the uh, uh, councils, the uh, board of uh, publications or any responsible position on campus, you had to have an accounting degree not a degree, but an accounting class. And you had to go to his accounting class to learn how to do it because they expected, we reviewed budgets every meeting and we did all of that. And we had to know double entry accounting and how to, where the numbers came from and the whole thing. Yeah. Well, I look back at that and I said, I didn't get an accounting degree, but, but through my other aspects, I had to learn it in order to function. Well, that's what we need to do. We need to set up systems so our people are forced to learn the essentials. They can't even do their own family budgets, most people. <laughs> so so you, you talk about essential skills you didn't learn from university or college. One of the most mind-blowing things that I've experienced since I created the cash flow course we were talking about earlier is I've now gotten paraphrasically the same email from five different people who all said the same thing. I'm going to paraphrase. Uh, I have an MBA. How is it that I don't know any of the stuff that I've just learned in your course? Exactly. Right. And so, so they actually got an undergrad and they did a master's degree in business. They don't understand forecasting a cash flow or even how to build it or how to get their head around it. Now, you know, maybe they did their MBA in human resources or something like that. I don't know. But to me, uh, masters of business administration, it means that you uh, should be adept at a lot of the different skill sets in business. Absolutely. You certainly have to have three, three courses in accounting at minimum. <laughs> but, but, but this is where we get back to the whole, I'm in the first generation of parents who know the truth about university. Because in 1993, I signed up for, I, I signed up for a, a, a BBA program. Bachelor of Business Administration for your program, right? So I did it around that time is when the MBA was becoming sexy, right? And I saw one school after the next who had only ever been like an undergrad institution start to introduce these one-year MBAs or these, you know, work remotely MBAs because the internet was coming around then or, you know, study from home MBA in only eight, eight months or something. 
And it was literally just, oh, people want MBAs, we'll make them. Yes. And 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 this, you know, what people do, I don't, if you've never gone through university, you don't quite understand this, is the people in the education industry create products based on what they can sell. Right. right? It's like any other industry. Yeah. And, um, and that's the trap because the teachers in the high schools, for example, are part of the education industry. So the moment the kids get into the high schools, they're told, if you want to get anywhere in life, you need a college degree. Right. Because if the truth ever came out that going to trade school and becoming a plumber will actually get you a higher income more quickly than any of those arts degrees, right? Um, it would undermine the value of what those high school teachers have invested in themselves to get into their positions, right? And so there's this bias within education that you need to buy more education. It would be like going to a car dealer and asking what the most efficient way to get around the city would be. They might point you at a smaller car or a more fuel efficient car, but they'll never tell you to buy a subway pass. Right. Because <laughs> they don't sell that. That's exactly right. They don't want to do that. There it goes. We drove off our only prospect. <laughs> now, all right, uh, Paul. This has been a. It's a, been great catching up with you. Good to catch up with you. Uh, so we'll uh, we'll do it again uh, at least next year, or maybe we'll talk in between. Awesome. I hope you enjoy the holidays. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.